0: Welcome to the Waukesha Bible Church
1: Podcast. We believe the Bible tells a single story, and at the center of that story is Jesus. If you like what you hear today, additional sermons, teaching sessions, and written material can be found on our website at waukeshabible.org. We hope you enjoy today's episode. scripture reading for today is revelation chapters 15 and 16. Then I saw another sign in heaven great and amazing seven angels with seven plagues which are the last for with them the wrath of God is finished and I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands And they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues clothed in pure bright linen with golden sashes around their chests and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever and the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse, and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was For you brought these judgments For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets And you have given them blood to drink It is what they deserve And I heard the altar saying Yes, Lord God the Almighty True and just are your judgments The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun And it was allowed to scorch people with fire They were scorched by the fierce heat And they cursed the name of God Who had power over the plagues they did not repent and give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and it was dried up, and to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon out of the mouth of the beast, And out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits, performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the city of the nations fell, and God remembered Babylon the great, to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And the great hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, fell from heaven on people. And they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe.
0: Amen. Good morning. Please be seated. It's good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 15. And we finally come to that chapter, uh, a chapter that is very well known. Um, it's a concept, that of Armageddon, and the concept of Armageddon is something, even if non-believers are familiar with this, even if, if people that have never heard of the Bible, they don't, they're not all that familiar with the Bible, this concept of Armageddon is something that they'll talk about. It's something that, that they know about. This very concept of the end is something that, that captures the imagination of many, uh, believers and non-believers alike. Does the Bible speak about the end of the world? Does it give us an image about what's going to happen towards the end? It does. And we hear some things about where all of this is going in terms of this narrative. But this, there might be some things that you want to know. What you really want to know is when. And the Bible does not speak to the when. But it does speak a little bit to the how. But interestingly, this is not the first time within Revelation that you've heard about Armageddon. This is certainly the first time the word Armageddon has been used. But this is an event. Um, this, is, this is a culmination which has been spoken of before in Revelation, but it's been said in different ways. It's also not the last time you're going to hear about it. The, the book of Revelation is telling the story multiple times from multiple different perspectives. What do we know about Revelation? What do we know about the literary genre that we're reading? What is this? What type of literary genre is this? Pat? Apocalyptic. He, you got beat to it. This is apocalyptic literature. And as we've said before, apocalyptic literature has very distinct characteristics. It's a little bit different than some of the other ways that we'll approach the Scriptures. One of those things is it's taking the same narrative and it's showing it from different angles and different perspectives. And so we learn a little bit more about the end in every different narrative that we see. So you're going to see this again. I, you, you've seen this before in 12 through 14. Uh, you're going to read about it here in 15 and 16, and you're going to see more elements of it in 19, and, and then again you're going to hear about it in 20. But each one of these narratives gives us a little bit more information about what is happening. And, and it's really interesting as we dig into what God is doing and how he is going to bring it to the end. But if we're going to think about it from the broad perspective... Um, You know, I I realize that there are a lot of different views about the end and and how we approach this, but in in the most basic sense, what have we seen so far in Revelation, and where is this going? What we see is a gradual progression and a gradual increase in persecution of believers, and that occurs in multiple ways, in uh, seduction, deception, and also persecution. And correspondingly, we see an increasing level of judgment that is occurring on the earth. And what we know, we don't know everything, but what we know that at some point, some point in the future, this has not happened yet, Satan will deceive the nations into conducting an all-out global assault against the church, against God's people, in his attempt to wipe out the kingdom of Christ once and for all. He's going to attempt to wipe it out, and he's going to use the nations as a means of doing that. But Christ will return to bring a final and decisive judgment "...upon everyone and everything who has persecuted his church and blasphemed his name." That is what the end looks like. But we can fill in a little bit of the details. But there's something I don't want to get lost in the wash. There's a lot of really interesting stuff uh, that that we can point out about the end. But what is this really about? This is about the wrath of God. And the subject of the wrath of God is, is oftentimes something that a lot of people would rather avoid. It's not necessarily something bright and cheery, but it's, but it's something that we can't ignore because it is a core, essential, foundational doctrine. This, this is what, one of the very elements of God. This is part of His nature. Now, I know that we would rather focus on His grace and mercy. I can understand why. Uh, his grace and His mercy are wonderful and we glory in those things. But apart from God's wrath, God's grace and mercy are meaningless. They mean nothing. I mean, So grace and mercy from what exactly? What we receive grace and mercy from is the judgment both you and I deserve. All of us are fully deserving of God's wrath. And so in these pictures that we see in Revelation, we see a lot of images... Of the wrath of God. Uh, Like I said, the last narrative that we went through, 12 through 14, we, we learn a little bit about the beast. Uh, rising up. And there's there are also the false prophet at the end of the 13. And then there's the turn in chapter 14, where it's God's people on Mount Zion that are facing the beast. And, and we see the consequences, the end result of this great battle. And it is really dark. It's, it's, it's showing the, the very nature of God's wrath being poured out. If you look at Revelation 14, verse 9, he says, and another angel A third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Now, that is very heavy, and that is very dark. But what we also realize is it's saying that those who have the mark of the beast, but the realization is is that there are only two types of people in the world. The mark of the beast isn't someone that just bows the knee to Satan or bows the knee to the government. The mark of the beast is anyone and anything that has not found faith in Christ. There are only two types of people those who are sealed by the Spirit and those who are marked by the beast. And all of us, every single one of us, are deserving of the judgment and wrath that we read about here in chapter 14, that we're going to read about in chapter 16, and that we read about in 19 and 20. All of us deserve it. The question is who paid that wrath? If you have the seal of the Spirit, it is Jesus who has taken on that wrath. But that does not mean that the wrath is gone. Christ has taken it on. But for those who have not taken on Christ, God's wrath is upon them. We're going to read that creation alone is enough for people to know that they have sinned against God. But for those that have heard the gospel, they have heard that Jesus is willing to take on the wrath of God for them, and then they say no? They walk away from that? The full weight of the infinite wrath of God is upon them. The wrath of God that Jesus would have taken on for them will now be borne by them, by all who say no to Jesus. That is very serious. And the wrath of God cannot be ignored. Because the wrath of God is real. And the wrath of God is being stored up. Right now, we are living in an age of grace and mercy. The fact that we are allowed to breathe and allowed to live on this earth is a very act of grace and mercy of God towards this earth, hoping that all will come to Him. But there is coming a day, and this is what we're going to read about. There is coming a day when the wrath of God that is being stored up will be poured out on earth. We don't know when that is going to happen. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be outside of our lifetimes. We don't know. But the wrath of God is being stored up and is being, will be poured out on the earth and upon all sinners. The only way to survive that is faith in Christ. It's faith in Christ. That is the only way to avoid the wrath that is coming. But the wrath is real. And a lot of people don't understand the concept. They, they, they think that somehow wrath is beneath God as, as an emotion. And, and that's because they don't really understand what wrath is. Wrath is not some, uh, un, uh, some irrational emotion or God just having a, a cosmic fit. Wrath is a just and righteous reaction to sin. God is infinitely holy and he is infinitely righteous and any and all sin is an affront; it is an attack to god 's very nature. It is an attack upon his own holiness and righteousness and and people may not understand well my my sin is is finite. There, why would God need to punish me infinitely for my sin that is only finite? and the answer to that is it 's not so much what you did that 's the problem of sin it 's who you did it against. You have sinned against a holy. And infinitely righteous God. And God would not be infinitely holy and righteous if his reaction to sin and the affront and the attack to his nature was not also infinite in turn. It's not about you, it's about God and his zealousness and his love for his own righteousness and his own holiness. And so this is what we see in Revelation. God's infinite wrath being poured out. It's very dark, but it's one that we must confront and know and give us urgency to preach the gospel to all nations because God's wrath is coming. And there's a time now when all can repent. There's a time now when we can all come to Christ. Now is that time. Now is that time when we must seek his grace and his mercy and his pardon because that time is now. As we look into our passage, uh, chapter 15 uh, we have something of an interlude uh, here in chapter 15. So we're sandwiching chapter 14 and chapter 16. Again, 14, chapter 14 is very dark. Uh, and, and, and I would say it's, it's displaying the glory and majesty of God. Uh, it also speaks of the great harvest that is yet to come, the coming of the Lord, where he's going to harvest the, the earth. And, and the sinners are going to be placed in the wine press of God's wrath. And they are going to be crushed. There's these symbolic images, these pictures that are intended you to, to give this imagination, to give you this picture of what God's wrath is going to be like. But we see here, right in the beginning, uh, verse 1, he says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. In what way is the wrath of God finished? Um, Well, because first of all, we know that the wrath of God is eternal in hell. We just read about that. The smoke of their torment rising forever and ever. So sinners are going to be punished forever and ever. So it's not the end of God's wrath in that sense. And we're only in chapter 15. We're going to read more about God's wrath in chapter 19 and chapter 20. What we are saying here, how is this the end of wrath? This is the very end of the earth as we know it. What is being spoken of is the return of Christ. And at the return of Christ, that's it. That's the end. That's when God is going to recreate the earth. That is the end of redemptive history as we know it. That is the end. And we've been seeing these cycles all the way through Revelation. We've been seeing uh, there's been the, uh, the seals and there's been the trumpets. And that's been speaking a little bit to the judgment that has been happening on the earth uh, as, as time goes, goes on. But this is different. The, these judgment that we see in chapter 16, this is whole. This is complete. This is the end. Whereas only parts of creation were affected in the prior judgments, this is all of creation. All of creation is going to be judged. God is going to recreate everything. God is going to create a new heavens and a new earth. But before he does that, he's going to destroy. He's going to decreate. He is going to empty the earth and all of creation of all sin. For in the new heavens and the new earth, there can be no sin. There can be no evil. And he's going to rid all of creation of that in all of this process. But he gives comfort. All of a sudden, so he introduces uh, the plagues. And then he transitions into uh, the Song of Moses. And this is kind of interesting. It's a little bit of an interlude here. And what's intended here, what we're supposed to picture, what we're supposed to think of, is the plagues of Egypt. He's saying, remember that? Remember the plagues of Egypt? Remember what I did in Egypt? It's going to be like that. And he's doing this in a way to demonstrate the judgment that is going to come, but he's also reminding his people that they will be protected in all of this. Remember what happened in the plagues? The Egyptians were affected, but not God's people. God's people were, were safe. They, they were protected by God. The same thing is going to happen here. Second, the other thing that wants to be pointed out is this is another exodus of God's people. He is going to take his people, you and me, all who are found by faith in Christ, and he's going to shepherd us into the new heavens and the new earth. It is a new exodus, and it is Christ that is going to deliver us. And so these are the things that, that are intended to be painted, that are intended to be pointed out. And I just think it's a great and glorious statement about the power of God. And to remind us, you, me, and the entire earth, that all of this is in charge by God. God is in charge of all of this. He is in sovereign over all of these plagues. He's sovereign over all of these judgments. And he is in control of what is about to happen next. Regardless of how chaotic it looks, regardless of how it appears that evil is going to overcome God's people, remember... God is in control. So we have this introduction of what's about to happen. We have these angels that are flying out with the wrath of God that has been stored up, that is about to be poured out. And, and nobody is allowed to be inside the temple. There's the imagery here that the, that the uh, new heavens are started to be recreated, the, the new temple uh, of God's people that is being formed. And, but nobody is allowed in it until this process is over, until sin is wiped out until all that is unholy will be cleaned. And so we lead up to uh, chapter 16, uh, this this entire process. And we're going to take a little bit of time here to look at these bowls of God's wrath. Now, a few interesting things that that we want to point out. We've already pointed out some. Number one, what you're going to want to remember is... Uh, the plagues of Egypt. This is very intentionally lining up exactly with the plagues of Egypt so that you can remember as a word picture what this is like. Uh, second of all, unlike the seals and the trumpets, what we are seeing here is complete. It's whole. It's not, it's not like a third. Uh, I think of the trumpets. We said this affected a third of the earth or a third of the population. This is speaking to everything. Everything that, that, that is about to be wiped out. And finally, a really interesting thing to note here is what this is being uh, poured out on. We we have this idea of these bowls, of the wrath that's being stored up. And now it's going to be poured out, but it's not poured out directly upon sinners. It's poured out on creation, which might seem like kind of an odd thing. Why why would God pour out this on creation as opposed to directly on sinners um, alone? Now... Certainly these plagues, they impact sinners, and we're going to learn about that impact, but, but it's being poured out on creation. And, and why would that be? Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1, verse 18. What we are seeing here is God taking ownership of what is His, this very gift of creation that has been given to you, me, and all of life, even to sinners, and that which has been turned around... That which has been worshipped instead of God is going to be turned against them. The very thing that was supposed to point sinners towards Christ has been used by sinners to try to explain God away. And so he says, okay, you're going to take my creation? You're going to take that which I have given to you as a gift, that which was to point you towards me, I'm going to turn it against you. So if you're in Romans 1, verse 18, uh, Paul speaks to this issue. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. This very creation that was to point man towards God, that was to give God worship, man then worshipped creation. They made creation its God. They made creation its provider. Not even giving acknowledgement to God. And so God is taking what is His, and make no mistake, creation, and all that is, is His. Because He created it. It was given to us. We were given authority over it, and yet we did not take authority over it. We were to subdue it, yet we didn't. We have failed in our mission that was given to us, And all of this is an act of sin. And so now, all those who are not found in Christ are going to have creation turned against them. They will know who is God, and it is not creation. Creation is not God. So now all of this wrath that has been stored up from the beginning of creation until now, God being patient and kind, waiting for all to come to him, will now be poured out upon the earth. So the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Now, how could this be? If it's being poured out on the earth, how is it that that comes about making sores uh, and, 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 and painful things and diseases? Well, it, it, it could be many things. Uh, there, there could be many things going on. It could be a plague. Um, one thing that I, that I think is very likely, though, is what God is doing is attacking the food supply. How does... That which is in the earth get into us? Food. That which God has given us for our own supply is now being taken away from us. The food makes us sick. It diseases us. It's turned against us. So now our food supply is gone. So all the vegetables, all the plants, all the animals, we can't eat them anymore. Now what do we do? Well, we'll go to the oceans. There's, there's fish there, right? Uh, we, we, can, we can eat pretty well eating some seafood. Boom. Second ball. Gone. The oceans attacked. God says, okay, you're still not going to come to me? I'm going to take out the oceans. He's going to pour out his wrath onto the sea. Okay, no more food from the earth, no more food from the sea. Well, at least we still got drinking water. Uh, we, can, we, can, we can survive a little bit while and then on, to drink some water, boom. I'm going to take away the water. I'm going to take away the rivers and the streams and the wells. I'm going to turn them to blood. I'm going to take that away from you. Now what are you going to do? You can't eat? You can't go to the ocean, you can't drink any water, it's all gone. What I find really interesting here, in that third, the angel that's in charge of this plague upon the waters, he cries out, he says, just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Do you notice anything missing there, by the way? Who is to come? Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was. Normally, when you hear this admonition, we've heard this many, many times in Revelation where the angels are giving praise to God. Glory to God, who was and is and is to come. Why is he no longer is to come? He was, who is, because he's came. There no longer is the come. The is to come is came. Jesus is here. He's being announced. The return of Christ is here, and he is coming in judgment. This is the end. This is the end that is coming. Jesus is here, and we're going to hear from him again. And, And they said, for they have shed the blood. This is the angel. They have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Throughout time, all of God's prophets and all of God's people that have been persecuted and killed are now being avenged by God. And he says, and I heard the altar saying. Wait a minute. The altar? Huh? What does that mean? We see multiple times through Revelation that the altar is the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the persecuted that are crying out to God for justice. Well, now those prayers are going to be fulfilled. All of the prayers throughout time by God's people that have been crying out for justice. For for crying out for God's mercy upon the sinning earth to end is now going to be answered. And there's a sense in which the prayers that are prayed have been stored up as well. And these too are going to be poured out upon sinners. And the prayers of the saints, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And we cry out as well to the glory of God that he is true and his judgments are correct. For he is Holy. Yet another thing, still they do not cry out to God. The fourth bull, the fourth angel, poured out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. No food to eat, no water to drink. And now, that sun that you worshipped at one point, I'm going to burn you with it. I'm going to cook you alive. And there's going to be no shelter from it. The sun is going to take you out. You would think, at this point, at this cycle of the judgment, the entirety of it, the severity of the judgment that is taking place, you would think, okay, listen, us sinners, we're done for. Okay, there's nothing to eat. There's nothing to drink. We're being scorched alive by the sun. Um, maybe, maybe grandma was right and I should reach out to God and cry out for mercy. You would think that that would make sense. That, that's where people would be at this point, to cry out to God, we get it, we get it, we're sorry. And if they would they could still be forgiven at this point. God would still be merciful. But do they cry out in mercy? No. No, they don't. Their hearts are only hardened by this judgment. And, and we see this actually throughout Scripture. Um, the Judgment of God is very real, but it's not the judgment of God that brings people to God. It is not God's wrath that, that turned that to them. Uh, Pharaoh, when the wrath of God was being poured out in Egypt, his heart was hardened. He didn't turn to God because of that. He was hardened. And and we see this also. Um, Turn with me, if you will, uh, to uh, Romans 2. Uh, Romans 2, uh, verse 3. And this is just after Romans 1, when Paul is talking about the wickedness of earth. Starting in verse 3, he says, Do you suppose, O man... You who judge those who practice such things and that you do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hardened and penitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Again, right now, we are living in a time of patience. God is not pouring out his wrath yet, but there is a time when that will be poured out. But he's withholding his judgments for now. He's holding back his wrath, hoping that all will come to Christ. For it is his, his, his uh, kindness and his forbearance, it's the gospel message that brings people to Christ. But that gospel message includes the message that God's wrath is real. And God's wrath will be upon us, Come to Christ now. But once that wrath is upon it, that does not change people's hearts. That only hardens people's hearts. That does not mean that the wrath isn't coming. The wrath is coming. But people's hearts are being hardened through all of this. And despite all the judgments that's being poured out upon sinners, their hearts are gone. Their hearts are hardened. And they're, they're not turning. They did not repent. And they did not give Him glory. Even after the sun And then conversely, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. So in contrast, we have them being cooked alive by the sun and now the throne of the beast is being thrust into darkness. Literal darkness? In this case, I don't think so. They're already being cooked by the sun. I think what's being happening here is they are being plunged into moral, spiritual, mental darkness. They didn't come to repent to God after being, having everything taken away, having the sun being cooked alive. Perhaps God is saying, why don't you run to the government? They're the ones that have made so many promises. They said they would take care of you. Why don't you run to them? And so they run to the throne of the beast. They, want, they run to the one that gave them so many promises and it's absolutely powerless. They are plunged into absolute spiritual darkness, mental chaos, disorganization. Throughout scriptures, uh, the, the people of God are described as the people of light, as opposed to the people of darkness. Do not be people of the darkness, but be people of the light. And here we see the whole earth, the thrones and the kingdoms, and, and, and the overseeing seers being thrown into absolute spiritual darkness. Darkness, moral decay, mental decay. And, and it just, it makes sense. You know, are, are, are people going to be gnawing their, their tongues in anguish and cursing God because the light's gone out? No. They're cursing God because of madness and spiritual darkness of which the world is now being plunged into. And that leads directly into the sixth bowl, the one that everyone is very, very familiar with, Armageddon. And let's read this passage, because I think it's interesting. A lot of people know about this concept, um, but you might be surprised what it says. Uh, you might be even more surprised what it doesn't say. Uh, starting verse 12, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. For they are demonic spirits, performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God Almighty. And here's the words of Jesus. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. That's it. That's what the Bible says about Armageddon. This is the once and only place that that the word Armageddon is used. This is not the only place that this concept is is said, but that's the one time that that that, uh, word is used. Now, Armageddon. Uh, It wouldn't surprise you that 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 phrase has many potential uh, interpretations and there is no shortage of interpretation. One of the most common ones is the thought that it is uh, Megiddo because Megiddo sounds like Megiddo. Um, And that that is not necessarily an unreasonable take uh, because it does sound like that. And many great battles uh, of, of Israel's history did occur at Megiddo. Now, interestingly, Megiddo's city... It existed, but it didn't exist at the writing of this. Um, and, and furthermore, there, there's the, the har. If you want to take the word as from the Hebrew perspective, it's har-megiddon, and, and so that could be Megiddo. And, and where that might make sense is, again, there were, there were a lot of battles that took place. And what might be uh, intended to, to remind the people of God, uh, especially the Jewish listeners here who are familiar with Jewish history, Um, The idea that God's people are under attack. You know, many, many great people, many great battles occurred at Megiddo. So if I'd use the phrase to you, you know, and, and you may not be familiar with Megiddo, but if I'd use the phrase to you, Gettysburg, what does that mean to you? probably means to you a, a great and decisive bloody battle. That, that word has meaning to you. That, that's not, that doesn't mean a city in Pennsylvania to you necessarily, but what you think of is a great and decisive battle. Or the phrase D-Day, what does that mean to you? You know, a, a great beginning, a, a great onslaught, uh, the beginning of something that is great and that is coming. Or if I use the term Waterloo, what does that mean to you? You know, for, for Napoleon, it was what should have been his great and glorious victory turned out to be his stunning f- defeat. So if I said to you that Armageddon was Satan's Waterloo, that this is where this should have been Satan's great victory turns out to be his crushing defeat, that word has meaning to you. And likewise, for a lot of the Jewish listeners, if they heard the term Megiddo, they say, oh, there was a, this is going to be a very uh, great battle. It would be a turning point. So it, it could mean that. But here's the thing. Har-Megiddo means the mountain of Megiddo. Har-Megiddon. Or Har-Megiddo, if, if Megiddon means means Megiddo. Um, and, and taking this from the littlest, literalist perspective, um, if, if, if this really is about armies that are gathering, all the armies of the world would be gathering on a mountain. Um, if, if we're taking this from a, a literalist perspective, which is a little bit of problematic. Sometimes it said, well, no, this is going to take place on the plains of Megiddo, but that's not what it said. It says the mountain, the mountain of gathering where all this is taking place. Uh, Furthermore, um, there's this idea of the drying up of the waters. If we go, go to the beginning, there's the drying up of the waters and the kings of the east. Now, throughout time, people have been trying to identify who the kings of the East are. It, it doesn't have to be that big of a mystery, but, you know, sometimes it's usually who's ever in power at the time, whether it's uh, the Ottoman Empire, or there was a short amount of time and period where it was Japan that was thought that was going to attack, uh, then, you know, maybe China uh, or Russia, then it was definitely Iran and Iraq for a while, and, oh, oh all of a sudden, you know, what's, what's Russia up to? You know, and, and, and so it's looking for geopolitical... Um, rulers from the east that this might be. But I think this is looking to the wrong thing because the kings of the east was a very common phrase that that was being used um, by the Jews at the time. And what that meant was is that God's people are under attack. Israel was always under attack. God's people were always under attack. There was the Assyrians, there was the Babylonians, there was the Persians, there was a lot of other tribes, and typically it was from the east. And so if they're using the phrase the kings from the east, that's saying... God's people are under attack. They're coming. They're coming. And, and, uh, that, and, and the Euphrates, you know, the, the, the symbolic idea of, of the drying of the Euphrates. From a literalist perspective, um, it, it's saying that, that God is, is drying up the waters to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Now, in modern warfare, it is absolutely not necessary for any waters to be dried up. Uh, whether it's the Euphrates or otherwise, to attack Israel. It's, it's not necessary. Nor was it necessary in the ancient world either. Israel was getting attacked all the time. And it didn't require the Euphrates uh, to get dried up. But what we do see... Uh, Throughout Scripture and throughout redemptive history is the idea of, of God drying the waters as an act of judgment. And so what's interesting here is all that's happening, this attack upon God's people, is actually an instrumentation of God's wrath upon the earth. Not upon God's people, mind you, but upon sinners. And so God is preparing the way for this attack to take place. And what you're supposed to be reminded of, again, is the plagues in Egypt. What happened... When Moses took his people to the Red Sea, what happened? God opened up the Red Sea, and God's people walked across the dry land. Then what happened? Pharaoh's army followed after him on the dry land, and what happened? Whoosh! That's exactly what's happening. God is opening up the way. He's preparing the way for this attack, but it's a trap. Whoosh! He's going to take them over, and he's going to wipe them out uh, based on this judgment. And and the Euphrates was also a symbolic barrier uh, towards the east, especially in the Roman world. It was kind of considered the the boundaries, uh, particularly of of Israel's uh, property, uh, Israel's land, um, as as a symbolic um, gesture or a symbolic um, beginning uh, of the land. Uh, But the kings of the east does not really have to be all that uh, mysterious because uh, it's really explained uh, immediately in the text. Uh, he says in verse 14, uh, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day. So it's not just kings from the east. What is happening here is there are those that are being deceived and it's going to be the kings of the whole world. All of the rulers and all of the principalities of the world are going to be impacted by this. And we see this in multiple times. And I'm going to read this again. I saw, this is starting in verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophets, three unclean spirits like frogs. They're demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. This is the great deception. So what we see, and actually I'd like to point this out. This has been said uh, in multiple times, in multiple different ways throughout Revelation. We heard a little bit about it beginning. There's Revelation 6, Revelation 9 it's mentioned, uh, Revelation 11, Revelation 12 and 14, uh, and here in Revelation 16, uh, and then again in Revelation 20. We're going to hear about this all over again. But in Revelation 20, there's a really important detail that we finally learn. And, and again, uh, when we're looking at this from a camera angle perspective, when God is showing us the same thing, this, this idea of Armageddon, this idea of the great battle that is coming, and doing it multiple times, again and again and again, we learn different things and different details. In Revelation chapter 20, we learn at some point uh, in the past, uh, during, during Christ's uh, ministry on earth, Satan was bound. He was bound and placed in a pit. Now, that does not mean that, that Satan uh, was um, gone or that he was not around on the earth or prowling uh, the earth like a beast as he is. What it means, and it's explained immediately in Revelation chapter 20, that he had a certain amount of authority taken away from him. He was, this was done for a very specific reason, that he could not deceive the nations. He was bound from the authority of being able to deceive the nations. And then we learn later on that he's going to be released. What does he do when he's released? He deceives the nation. He deceives all of the nations for this very purpose of rising up against the people of God as an attack upon the church to wipe it out. So I'd like to point out a few of these narratives. Number one, we see a little image of this uh, in Revelation 11 uh, regarding the two witnesses. And So the two witnesses, uh, verse, verse 7 Uh, Revelation 11, verse 7. And when they have finished their testimony, that is the two witnesses, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. Okay, not a lot of detail there, but we see that he's released from the pit and that it appears that in his conquest against the church, that it may even appear that he's somewhat victorious. Uh, But there's more. Uh, Revelation 13 and 14. Now again, We've just gone off of reading Revelation 12 through 14. We learn in Revelation 12, we learn about the dragon. We learn about Satan and the authority that, that he is then given. But then in, in chapter 13, we learn about the beast and the false prophet is in our chapter here in 16, he's labeled the false prophet, the second beast. And so we hear a little bit about the authority that's now being granted to them. And what you're reading about here in Revelation chapter 13 is the exact same thing that is being spoken of here in Revelation 16 about this deception, these, 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 these signs that are being done. So, so listen to this. And if you can turn there, go ahead. Revelation 13, starting in verse four. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. So what is being spoken of here is the exact same thing as what is being spoken of in Revelation 16. It's just being told from a different perspective in a different way. And then we read about the same thing about the false prophet. Uh, Later on in verse 13, look at verse 12. This is is speaking of the second beast, uh, the false prophet. Verse 12. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wounds was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And here we learn a little bit more about what this war on the saints was like. Verse 15, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. And so the image of the beast might even speak and and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And it also causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man and his number is 666. So we hear a little bit about that assault that is coming um, through this great deception. And then I want to read the narrative from Revelation 20 that speaks of the similar idea, the similar attack that is taking place, but this time from the perspective of Satan and what Satan does. Revelation 20, starting in verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are of the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number will be like sand of the sea. And they marched up and over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and of the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So we're learning different things about what is happening from this exact same event. Uh, Chapter 14 also speaks of this outcome where those, the followers of the beast and the false prophet are thrown into the fiery pit. You're going to read about that again in chapter 19. And you may be wondering, why do these same things happen over and over again? It sounds like kind of the same thing, but, but it happens over and over again. That's because it's speaking of the same thing, but it's telling the story from a different perspective and a different angle over seven different cycles. This is this is one of the hallmarks of apocalyptic literature. And we get to hear a little bit more and more about this this idea, this event. But this event is the end. It is the end. And so we hear what is the outcome of this, of the nations rising up against God's people. So we see that, the, that Satan is released, and, and he gives his authority to the beast and the false prophet. And what do they do? They convince the nations to rise up against the people of God in an all-out final assault to finally wipe out the church of God, to wipe out Christianity once and for all, to end God's kingdom. So where does Armageddon take place? If you're thinking in terms of geography, like a specific place, you're thinking the wrong thing. Armageddon is not about geography. It's not a where. It's a who. Who is being attacked? God's people. Everywhere. Will it be, will it take place in Jerusalem? Yes. Why? Because there are believers there. Will it take place in Africa? Yes. Because there are believers there. Will it take place in Waukesha? Yes. Because there are believers in Waukesha. The nations of the world, all of them, all of them, all of the governments, all of the nations will be deceived at some point. And they will rise up for all that have the seal of the Spirit on them. All who have faith in Christ. All of them. And it's coming. It's coming. I don't know when, but these judgments are rising up. And one day, Satan will rise up against the church. What does that look like? Well, we can speculate. We know a little bit. Uh, We already read in in chapter uh, 13 um, about what the false prophet does. He makes it virtually impossible in this world to be a believer. You know, if you don't have the mark of the beast, and again, the mark of the beast is not some tattoo that you receive. It's not some bending of the knee to the government. It's if you don't have faith in Christ, you are marked by the beast. If you don't have the seal of the spirit, you are one of the beasts. You are one of Satan's. And so he rises up, and he makes it virtually impossible to be a believer, to, to live or to work. Um, you know, I'm, I'm speculating here. This isn't necessarily what the word is saying, but let me, let me draw a picture for you. Imagine, if you will, that when you get up after this is done, and you walk out those doors, and there's cameras and news crews right outside the front waiting to take your picture. And the story is, here are the hateful, intolerant people of Waukesha. They still believe in Jesus. These are their names. These are their faces. These are their children. This is where they live. This is where they work. Do not allow them to come to your place of business. Do not serve them. Do not employ them. Do not work with them in any fashion. If you knew that was going to happen, would you... Come again next week? I hope so. You might think, I might stream next week if that happens, but. You no, know, sometimes when you think of persecution, you think, well, someone's gonna have a gun to my head, and when someone has a gun to my head, um, I'm not going to deny Jesus. Good. I, I hope that you've made that decision, but it's not always that simple. There are many ways in which Satan can rise up against believers. And it's not just persecution. We've seen all throughout Revelation that it's also seduction and deception, anything and everything that would convince you that you don't need Jesus. That's what's coming. It could be theological deception, it could be moral deception, anything and everything that says, "You don't need Jesus. Folks, you do need Jesus. Regardless of what you're hearing, whatever you'll hear. Whatever deceptions that are going about, you need Jesus. And we're, we're going to hear more about Babylon and, and how seductive and deceptive it can be. Now, some might ask, well, so in this great assault against God's church, does that mean that there will be no more churches? And I would say, oh, no. <laughs> actually, and again, I'm speculating, but, but in this great assault, I would say, actually, there'll be a lot of churches. Many churches big churches, beautiful churches, and I think they'll be full. But you know what they won't be doing? They won't be preaching Christ. Christ's name will not be uttered there. It can't be. Oh, no, I I think there will be plenty of churches, plenty of people saying plenty of good things, but they will be doing all of these things and doing anything but pointing you towards Christ. That's what the great deception looks like. So all of these things in many different ways, and all of it, all of it is for the point. It is one final and last push to wipe out the people of God. And there is coming a day when God will finally say, enough, enough. I am going to wipe out all the wickedness of earth. I've heard the prayers of the saints. Enough wrath is being stored out. Enough. I am ending it. And Jesus says with this exhortation, behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that, may he know, that he may not go out naked and be seen exposed. What's he talking about? He's talking about the deception to come. Babylon is coming and is going to try and deceive you into believing that you need anything other than Christ. I find it really kind of exciting and interesting, the language that is being used here, coming like a thief. You're, you're going to be reminded of something from the New Testament right away. Probably 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when Paul spoke of the day of the Lord. Turn with me, if you will, really quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And this is, this is Paul speaking of the day of the Lord. And I want you to remember everything that you've heard so far um, about the wraths, the, the, the bowls of wrath that have been poured out. And, and you might be reminded of a few things here. And I am finishing up, I promise. Uh, uh, chapter 5. Uh, Verse 1. Now, concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then suddenly destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness." Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. What does it mean to not be naked? What does it mean to be clothed? It's to be found in Christ. It's the clothing of righteousness and salvation that only comes through faith in Christ. Stay awake. Stay vigilant. Keep your clothes on. Remember, this deception is coming. It's coming. And be ready. And so here we see a final gathering. The Harmageddon. The the mountain of gathering, where where God's people come. And and I think what just makes the most sense is is we're looking at the mountain of gathering. In chapter 14, what we see is this exact same image. They're gathered on the mountain of God's people. The lamb and the 144,000. So chapter 13, the beasts are rising against God's people, making war on them and the authority to kill them. What happens? Chapter 14, verse 1 There it is, the Lamb and his people, the 144,000, standing on Mount Zion in defiance of the beast, ready for battle, and the outcome of that battle is destruction, utter destruction. All of God's enemies are destroyed. That is the end. That's the story of Armageddon. Satan and all of his minions, all of his demons, and all who follow him are going to rise up. But Christ and his angels and his people are going to destroy him on the last day. All that is evil will be purged of this world to make way for the new heavens and the new earth. That is Armageddon. That is the end. And it's a great and glorious thing. And I know it's not as exciting as the idea of all the armies of the world gathering together and and, and to to fight. And there may be armies that gather to try to kill Christians. But what this is, is an assault upon the church. That is what we're reading about. And finally, we're going to go more into it. I'm going to let Pat speak more towards the seventh seal and the destruction of Babylon. But the seventh seal speaks to the end. Babylon, which is the world and all of its systems that are opposed to Christ, are going to end. God is cosmically destroying the earth and all of the evil that exists within it. He's putting it to an end because he's going to recreate it with the new heavens and the new earth. Babylon the Great has been mentioned here. And it's one of those things in the scriptures where it says, ah, so you mentioned Babylon the Great, let me tell you about Babylon. And that's where Pat's going to go next week in chapter 17 and chapter 18. But really quickly, what does this mean to you and why should it matter? The point of this passage is simply to remind you, remember Christ. Remember Christ. There is an assault that is coming. And it may feel that evil is growing darker and darker every day because it is. But what's going to happen is Christ is going to return. And when he does, that's the end. That should give us urgency to witness to others because we don't know when the end is. It could be soon. It could be any day. Christ is coming. Stay awake. Stay vigilant and keep your clothes on waiting for Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we can look at these words and that we can look at what you are done. And we are reminded that this is your story. This is what you are doing. And we Tremble and quake at the idea of your wrath being poured out, and we are most grateful that in you we have protection for your wrath, that that we are not going to be recipients of your wrath, but it is Jesus who took on the wrath for us. We thank you for that, Lord. And and we we know a day is coming when, when an assault may occur, but in that day we will be found in you, for all of our faith is in you. We are sealed in you, Lord, and we give you the praise and the glory and the honor. We thank you, Lord to the praise of the glory of your name, amen.